Let me pray as we come to God's word. Let's pray. Our gracious Heavenly Father, I pray uh, that you would give us uh, ears to hear what you are saying to us tonight. Uh, Father, I pray that you would give us hearts uh, that want to obey. And Father, I pray that uh, as we uh, take in your word tonight, uh, that we, we would leave here transformed people, uh, ready to do your work of loving one another. In Jesus' name, amen. Uh, well, there was a movie that came out in the early 2000s uh, called A Walk to Remember. Uh, the film tells of the story of a Christian girl who befriends a troubled young man and then ultimately falls in love with him. Uh, now, the movie's okay if you're into that sort of thing. I can see a lot of uh, women nodding, uh, not so many men. Um, but there is one particular conversation that happens uh, in this movie between this Christian girl and her father, who is a pastor, that I just want to think about for a minute. And this is kind of like pertinent to me because I could see myself having one of these conversations in the future with one of my daughters. Um, but in this particular scene, uh, the girl is on the front porch of her home debating with her father about the wisdom of dating someone who is not a Christian. The father says, you might not care about what I think, but you should care about what God thinks. The daughter replies, I think God wants me to be happy. And that kind of ends the discussion. And a few scenes later, the father is actually marrying the daughter and this boy. Now, I raise this because I think it captures some of the common confusion that exists about what God primarily wants in the lives of his people. You see, what the daughter appears to believe in this scene is that God wants most of all for her to be happy. In fact, God wants this so much for her that he is apparently okay with, ignoring, with her ignoring what his own word says in order to get that happiness. Well, in our passage today, Jesus clears up the confusion on the issue of what God wants. He tells us that what God really wants in the lives of those who trust him is fruitfulness. Fruitfulness that doesn't ignore Jesus, but is actually marked by faith in him and obedience to his word, particularly his word to love one another. Uh, now, I've broken the talk into three parts. The fruitful life is what God wants. The fruitful life uh, comes only by remaining in him. And the fruitful life of love is where real joy is found. So first, the fruitful life is what God wants. And you'll notice that in this passage, Jesus uses a particular metaphor to highlight God's big goal for us. Uh, in this metaphor, Jesus refers to himself as the true vine, which we'll come back to. He then speaks of God, the Father, as the gardener, and Jesus follows you and I as the branches. But notice from the outset what the main purpose of God the gardener is for those who are the branches. It's fruitfulness. See, look at verses 1 and 2. I am the true vine, my father is the gardener. He cuts off every branch in me that bears no fruit, while every branch that does bear fruit he prunes 
so that it will be even more fruitful. And we see that purpose coming out again in verse 8. This is to my Father's glory, that you bear much fruit, showing yourselves to be my disciples. And again, at the end of the chapter in verse 16, Jesus says to his disciples, You did not choose me, but I chose you and appointed you. Why? So that you might go and bear fruit, fruit that will last. What does God want in my life as a Christian? Fruitfulness. Now, I take the idea of fruitfulness in these opening verses uh, to refer to a life that is becoming more and more like Jesus in every way, a life that listens to Jesus' word, lives his way, and, and most importantly, as we'll see towards the end of the chapter, loves his people. So it's good to stop at this point and ask, if you're a Christian, do you know God's main agenda for your life? See, maybe like the daughter in a walk to remember, you believe what God really wants for you is to fulfill your own version of happiness. Maybe you think that what God wants for you is to give you comfort, material blessings, money, a good job. Some years ago, a prominent pastor in one of the biggest churches in the US wrote these words in an open letter to his congregation. God wants us to prosper financially, to have plenty of money to fulfill the destiny he has laid out for us. But you see, Jesus is saying something different here, isn't he? What God wants first and foremost out of Jesus' people as they trust him is fruitfulness. That is what glorifies God, verse 8. In fact, because God is so keen to see fruit in our lives, there will be actually times that may well be uncomfortable to achieve that goal. See, look at what it says in verse 2. God will from time to time pull out the secateurs to do some pruning in our lives so that we become more fruitful. Uh, I recently had to prune the vine uh, that grows along our front veranda. And like most household tasks, I consulted YouTube in what to do. And what I learned is that you actually can't be too timid when pruning a vine. Uh, if you don't prune hard enough, each uh, of the branches will just get huge and there will just be nothing but leaves, very little fruit. But if you really care about your vine and you, you want to see fruit, then you seriously and intentionally prune. And you see, that is what God does in our lives. It's because he cares for us and desires fruit in our lives that he will do some painful pruning from time to time. Circumstances, difficulties, trials, oppositions, sufferings, all will be used to strengthen our faith in Jesus and bring about greater Christ-likeness. Uh, just an example, as, as much as I loved uh, studying at Bible college, I found it actually a time of deep pruning by God. Uh, I went into Bible college thinking uh, that I had some pretty good gifts for ministry, but after five years of being assessed, critiqued, corrected, uh, I left thinking how dependent I am on God for everything I do. 
And you see, I know that many of you actually can say the same thing. Not about Bible college necessarily, but, but one of the great joys, see, I've had in our growth group this year has been the way we've heard various testimonies given in the group. Uh, it's always wonderful to hear how someone came to know and trust Jesus, but one of the common themes in, in everyone's testimony, I think, so far has been the way God has used some kind of painful process to bring about a deeper faith in Jesus and more fruit in their lives. What does Jesus, what does God want from believers? Fruitfulness. But second, the fruitful life comes only by remaining in Jesus, the true vine. Uh, Our fruitfulness doesn't come about through our own will or our power or our charisma or enthusiasm. Jesus is the source of all our fruit. See, in one sense, this passage is telling us that with Jesus, something. Without Jesus, nothing. And that is actually made clear by the way Jesus identifies himself as the true vine in in verse 1, and then uh, again in verse 5, I am the vine. You see, in the Old Testament, God's people Israel were often referred to as his vine. For example, in the the Isaiah reading that Andrew read before, we were given a picture of God bringing his people into existence as a farmer would plant a vineyard. He gives them every possible provision. He, He cares for Israel. He nourishes them, leads them. But what does he get when he goes looking for some fruit? He gets bad grapes. In Isaiah 5 verse 4 it says, what more could I have done for my vineyard? Than, uh, what more could I have done for my vineyard that I have done for it? When I looked for good grapes, why did it yield only bad? Because of Israel's rejection of God and inability to bear good fruit, she is judged for her sin and laid waste. And so the vineyard, God's people, seems kind of finished and hopeless. But then Jesus' wonderful words come crashing into history. I am the true vine. I am what Israel should have been. They produce bad fruit. I produce good fruit. To be considered a member of God's people now, part of his true vine is to have faith in Jesus. And he is the only way we can bear good fruit. With Jesus, something. Without Jesus, nothing. See, look at verse 4. Remain in me as I also remain in you. No branch can bear fruit by itself. It must remain in the vine. Neither can you bear fruit unless you remain in me. I don't know if you've ever had the experience of trying to iron a piece of clothing without realising that the plug is not connected or turned on. That has happened to me so many times, you wouldn't believe. Um, And you just get increasingly frustrated as you keep wondering, what on earth is wrong with this thing? And it's only when you realise that your wife has pulled out the plug um, after using it before you have, that things start to make sense. You see, without being plugged into the power source, The iron is completely useless. 
It can look good and ready to go, but your short shirts will remain crinkly. Without being plugged into, connected by faith to Jesus, a person can bear no fruit for God. We need the life-giving and fruit-producing power of Jesus flowing through us. See, look at verse 5. I am the vine, you are the branches. If you remain in me and I in you, you will bear much fruit. Apart from me, you can do nothing. But the picture kind of gets a little bit more bleak, doesn't it, as we read on. If, see, if we don't remain in Jesus, it's not just that we won't bear fruit. Like Israel, we'll actually fall under God's judgment. Did you see that in verse 6? If you do not remain in me, you are like a branch that is thrown away and withers. Such branches are, are picked up and thrown into the fire and burned. Now, I think there's a clear warning here. If we reject Jesus, we'll not only fail to produce good fruit, but we'll suffer judgment. Now, that might seem harsh to us uh, when we read it at first, this talk of fire. But Jesus thinks we need to hear this, so it's good to reflect on what he says. You see, think about what it actually means to refuse to remain in Jesus. It's essentially saying to, the, to God the Son that you can thrive and survive on your own. It's saying that you don't need his forgiveness, you don't need his life, you'll be fine on your own. But you see, Israel shows us that kind of thinking is a joke. When left to ourselves, all we give to God is bad grapes because our life is not ruled by him, it's ruled by us and our sinful desires. Oh, we might do the, the occasional good deed. We might go and mow our neighbor's lawn from time to time. But at a heart level, we'll remain someone who is walking through life with our proverbial fist in the air saying, I don't need you, God. I don't need your son, Jesus. And you see, that's the attitude that taints any good deed or or charitable work that we might do. That's what makes them sour before God. It's that attitude of, I can live my life on my terms, that is just so offensive to the holy God and results in judgment. There is no thriving or surviving outside of Jesus, the true vine. Apart from me, you can do nothing. Now, perhaps you're sitting here and thinking, well, um, that sounds quite confronting. How do I know if I'm someone who is remaining in or rejecting Jesus, the true vine? And it's good to ask that question. What is the mark of someone who is remaining in Jesus? Uh, is it that they wear a cross around their neck? That's how you can tell. Uh, is it that they're just a really nice person? Big smile. I lost my photo of that one. Is it that they go to a Christian school? Is it that they listen to Light FM? No, the telltale sign of a genuine trust in Jesus is actually obedience to Jesus' word. You see, Jesus says that those who remain in him are those who have the words of Jesus remain in them, verse 7. 
It's how we respond to Jesus' word that, that's the giveaway here. If we are truly trusting Jesus, we will want to live by his word. Uh, in the movie A Walk to Remember, it, it was kind of clear that Jesus' word was almost like a take it or leave it kind of thing. Uh, if Jesus' word gets in the way of your happiness, well, maybe just ignore it. But Jesus is telling us here in, in his word uh, that our response to his word is vital. It's not a take it or leave it kind of thing. Uh, and notice back in verse 3 that Jesus says uh, that his disciples are already clean because of the word he has spoken to them. Because they believed what Jesus said about who he is and why he came, and they had been forgiven, cleansed, and entered into a real relationship with God. And again, Jesus' word comes to the, to the fore in verses 10 and 14, where Jesus unpacks it further by, by noting that people in a real relationship with Jesus will be those who respond with faith and obedience to his commands. So just jump ahead and look in verse 10. If you keep my commands, you will remain in my love, just as I have kept my Father's commands and remain in his love. And he says something similar, but in a different way down in verse 14. You are my friends if you wear a cross around your neck. If you go to a Christian school, no, if you do what I command. Now, we might think it sounds a little bit weird to say you're only my friend if you do what I say. But Jesus' point is, is simple. You cannot say you love me, that you trust in me, depend on me, if at the same time you are content in rejecting my word. Now, this doesn't mean perfect obedience. Jesus knows that all of his followers will struggle with sin. But it does mean that we won't be comfortable with disobedience. Where we see it, we will repent, cling to the grace Jesus offers us, and seek to live his way. So we need to ask ourselves, are we remaining in Jesus, or are we rejecting him and his word? Uh, if you believe tonight that Jesus is not ruling your life, then I would encourage you to come to Jesus and find forgiveness and life. He is gracious, he is merciful, and he will, as the true vine, give you his power to help you in the battle to live his way. But third, the fruitful life of love is where real joy is found. Uh, in verses 9 to 17, Jesus sort of continues to unpack the metaphor that he's been using of the vine and the branches. But you'll notice that fruitfulness is now spoken about primarily in terms of obeying Jesus' command to love one another. See, so look at verse 12, for example. My command is this, love each other as I have loved you. He says it again in verse 17, this is my command, love each other. Now I suspect when we think about obeying Jesus' command to love one another, we don't immediately think joy. Maybe sometimes, yes, but I suspect often not. You see, I suspect the thought of loving some people might actually make us groan a little bit inside. I think we can often consider our love more of a duty than a joy. And I mean, to actually love someone in, in the self-sacrificing way that Jesus calls us to here is actually hard work. 
You know, sometimes it might mean forgiving a brother or a sister who's hurt you deeply. Sometimes it might mean giving up some of your time to visit someone who's sick, but then you just get no thanks for it. Sometimes it might mean uh, getting out of our comfort zone to speak to someone new after church, but then you just think, I got nothing in that conversation. Love can sometimes be hard work. But what I find remarkable about this text is that Jesus says that his goal in calling us to remain in him and to live that fruitful life of love is that we might have joy. See that back in verse 11. I have told you this so that my joy may be in you and that your joy may be complete. Uh, We all want joy, I think. Uh, We want to know there's something wonderful in our life that is worth living for, something worth getting out of bed for. Uh, Sometimes we pursue joy through (laughs) earthly means, though. Uh, Sometimes we pursue joy through our work. Sometimes we pursue joy through video games. Sometimes we pursue joy in relationships. Like the daughter in a walk to remember, we might think true joy is found in a relationship. But you see, all of those things might make us happy for a while, but they don't ultimately last. We have to retire one day from our job, we get bored of video games, our relationships lose some of the spark that we once enjoyed. But Jesus is saying, if you want true joy, well, it's actually found in knowing his love for you and then experiencing the joy of showing that love to others. See, the more we get... Uh, his, the more we get his love, the more we will find loving others a great joy, not simply a duty. Uh, now, I think there are three great things that Jesus wants us to know about himself that will help us to joyfully obey his commands to love others. His great love, his great friendship, and his great promise of the Father's help. So first, Jesus' great love. Jesus wants us to be captivated by his love for us first. I mean, look at how Jesus describes his love in verse 9. As the Father has loved me, so I have loved you. Now, that's actually a remarkable statement when you just stop to think about it. Um, When I was prepping for this sermon this week, I, I got to this verse, and I just kind of sat back in my chair in awe of it. You see, think about what Jesus is actually saying there. As God the Father has loved me in an infinite and an unfathomable way for eternity past, so I have loved you. I mean, perhaps you're here tonight and you uh, may not be feeling much love from anybody. Uh, Perhaps people around you have disappointed you, rejected you. Well, Jesus is telling you that if if you belong to him, you are loved beyond what you could possibly imagine. And you see, if you're here tonight and you you feel you actually are loved by others, maybe the special someone you've come with, a parent or a sibling, well, you need to know that as good as that love is, it's got nothing on what Jesus' love is for you. And you see, he actually shows us uh, that love in real terms, doesn't he, in verse 13? Greater love has no one than this to lay down one's life for one's friends. 
See, Jesus' great love for us takes him to the cross. That's where he lays down his life for us. We don't deserve that love. Like Israel in Isaiah 5, we've rejected God's rule. We've produced bad fruit. Like Israel, we deserve God's judgment. But because of his great love for us, Jesus takes our death on himself and gives us life and forgiveness through faith in him. See, if we're going to be fruitful in our love for others and take joy in that love, we must first reflect on how Jesus has first loved us. But second, Jesus' great friendship. See, look at verse 15. I no longer call you servants, because a servant does not know his master's business. I have called you friends. For everything that I learned from my Father, I have made known to you. Now, when Jesus speaks of friendship here, he's not speaking about being our buddy like that kind of Jesus. You know, a guy that sort of wants to have a bit of a laugh with us, never wants to offend us. No, Jesus remains our master, verse 15, not our buddy. But we do become his friends by him making known his will to us. You see, that's the difference between a mere servant and a friend according to Jesus. A mere servant just gets told what to do, but a friend is brought into the master's circle of knowledge where he's able to hear what's on his master's mind and, and what he wants from what God wants from us and for us. It's kind of like if you were the servant of the queen. And one day you were vacuuming the queen's carpets in the palace and she calls out to you uh, from her study to come into her room. Uh, she asks you to sit down at her desk and then proceeds to let you in on all her thoughts and plans for the year ahead. You know, who she's planning on seeing, where she's planning on going. Now, I reckon as a, as a cleaner, you'd feel pretty chuffed in that moment. You know, you'd, you'd feel this... Uh, deep sense of privilege. You go back to those carpets after that meeting with a deep sense of privilege and joy in knowing that the queen, that to the queen, you're not just some servant, but in some sense, well, based on that conversation, you, you've become a bit of her friend. And that kind of blows our mind to think about that with the queen, but how much more wonderful with God the Son. You see, he has let us in on the will of God. Uh, we know of God's plan to save sinners through Jesus' death and resurrection. He's let us know what it means to live a life pleasing to God by living fruitful lives of love. Uh, and when you start to fathom how marvelous it is to be a friend of Jesus, loving his people starts to become a joyful privilege. But third, Jesus' promise of the Father's great help. Uh, I don't know about you, but... When I desire to be a fruitful disciple, even though I desire it, I find it hard work. A loving people often feels like a, a slog. Life is often tiring and busy, and sometimes you just don't have the energy uh, to put into other people. But that's why it's so good to be reminded in these last verses that we can come to God and actually ask him for the help to live the fruitful lives of love when it's hard. See, look at verse 16. 
Jesus says, you did not choose me, but I chose you and appointed you so that you might go and bear fruit, fruit that will last. And so that whatever you ask in my name, the Father will give you. And actually, if you go back into verse 7, you kind of see the same promise. If you remain in me and my word in you, ask for whatever you wish and it will be done for you. Now again, Jesus isn't promising us a Ferrari here if we add the right words in the right order. Um, The context is actually fruitfulness. That's what we've been chosen for, Jesus says. He is helping us to see that the fruitful life that God desires actually comes about through prayerful dependence. So are you praying uh, that the Father would help you to be fruitful in your love? Uh, I was reminded uh, how important this is yesterday afternoon. Uh, We'd had a full day of celebrating Esther, our three-year-old's birthday, Uh, but by the afternoon the kids were well and truly tired and angry at everything. Um, and I was a bit in my own world too because I had some work to do. Uh, Ruth was trying to get organized for another evening uh, commitment. And needless to say that our love for each other as a family in that uh, moment needed some help. Uh, but then Ruth did what I think this passage calls for. Uh, I'd like to say it was me that made the first call here, but I can't. Uh, it was Ruth. Uh, she gathered all the kids together, myself, and simply said, let's ask God to give us the grace we need to love each other. And you see, that's what she did. She prayed that God would give us self-control and thoughtfulness in the stress of that moment. In that moment, we simply fell at our Father's feet and asked him to give us the fruit of love that we can't produce in ourselves. Now, I think it's fair to say we've talked a great deal about love uh, over the last few months uh, going through John's Gospel. But how have we actually gone asking God to give it to us? You see, maybe that is something we should be doing as a church. And maybe in your growth group this week, you could be asking God to help you become a fruitful person that genuinely loves the other people in your church. Maybe we could actually be praying for God to give us things uh, that he wants here, helping us not to be clicky, asking God to help us to forgive, asking God to help us to be honest with each other and to be humble as we hear a loving rebuke. Asking God to help us to look at the way we have been loved and made a friend of Jesus and to take joy in showing love and friendship to others in our church community. Uh, As some of you might know, the world recently celebrated the 50th anniversary of the moon landing. Uh, On July 20th, 1969, the Apollo 11 mission successfully landed on the moon and Neil Armstrong became the first human being ever to set foot on the moon. But one thing that might surprise you about the mission to the moon was that Buzz Aldrin, the second man to walk on the moon, read the words of John 15 
verse 5, after touching down. He had it written on a little card in the top right corner there, and during a radio blackout in front of uh, Neil Armstrong, he read these words. I am the vine, you are the branches. If you remain in me and I in you, you will bear much fruit. Apart from me, you can do nothing. He read those words out of gratitude for what God had achieved in that mission. Now, I reckon when I first found out this little fact, I was actually tempted to think, wow, if there was ever a demonstration of bearing much fruit for God, that's it, right? Landing on the moon. I mean, it doesn't get much bigger than that. But you see, as remarkable as that event was, and as right as Buzz Aldrin was to credit that success to God, the good news of our passage tonight is that you don't have to go to the moon to bear much fruit for God. You see, what God is primarily interested in is your fruitfulness here on earth, in your love for one another, in our congregation. You don't have to be an astronaut to pull off that kind of love. You just have to remain in Jesus. Keep remembering his great love for you, and in doing so, joyfully show his great love to others. Let's pray. Our gracious Heavenly Father, we thank you, Lord, uh, that you have chosen us. I thank you for the great task of loving one another, bearing fruit. Uh, Lord, we, we recognize that we cannot bear any fruit apart from Jesus, uh, but we want that fruit, Lord. We want that fruit of love within our congregation. And so we pray in your mercy, Father, that you might bear that good fruit among us. And we ask this in Jesus' name. Amen.